Um, so that's, it's a, it's a huge celebration. Um, we're going to do a little bit of a pivot uh, from celebration uh, to remembrance here. But um, today is the anniversary of one of the most significant events of my lifetime. Um, when I was 11 years old and in the sixth grade, uh, I went to school like any other Tuesday. I'd just begun at Chartier's Valley Middle School, and this was a big deal to me because it was the first year that I, became, I began changing classrooms and teachers uh, between subjects. I had Mr. Zinger for homeroom. Uh, he was a world history teacher as well. Uh, he was a real goofball, and I loved him. Um, I remember that as I began that year, the excitement and the anxiety that I had, it was one step closer to high school and to uh, becoming an adult, you know, uh, just being that thing which, like, 11-year-old me wanted to be in the worst way. And now I'm like, I want to go back because, like, being an adult is hard. Um, and I was taking a few courses that were going to set me up well for a more academic track in high school. And so there was a lot of, like, I'm excited about this, but I'm also anxious because it's brand new. I just was nervous, you know? Like, you ever been nervous <laughs> for the first day of school? Uh, second period, I headed to Miss Maruzak for reading in English. Um, she was a quirky, short woman who was kind of zany uh, and always brought... It was like it was like she drank a Red Bull before every class. Like, she, she brought the heat every single time. Um, and so at least if it was boring, uh, it was entertaining, you know? Like, if I wasn't into whatever we were talking about, I was at least entertained. Um, and I remember distinctly, we had those intercoms in our classrooms that... Uh, there was a there was like a noise that would come over the loudspeaker, and then we would hear the like the office administrator chime in. And I remember saying, "Mrs. Maruzak," and Mr. Maruzak said, "Yes, can you please send such and such to the office for an early dismissal?" Um, and our our class peered over at the young woman, well, young girl really, who was in the corner. Um, and it was interesting because like she clearly didn't expect <laughs> to be dismissed. It was like nine o'clock in the morning. It was almost like, "Why would you show up to school if you're going to get an early dismissal?" But Nobody really knew what was going on, um, and so she packed up her class, or packed up her things, uh, put the reading book back in the desk, and, and made her way down to the office. Um, and about 10 minutes later, there was another ding that came over the intercom. Miss Maruzak, yes, she replied with a hint of annoyance this time. Can you please send such and such to the office for an early dismissal? And this time, the young boy, whose name was called, uh, jumped to his feet after receiving the good news that he could depart from this prison that was Miss Maruzak's classroom, and he basically ran out of the room. Um, he followed suit with the first girl, packing his things up, putting the, the book back in the desk, and, and, and heading down to the office. And this trend would continue for the rest of the 50-minute period. About every seven to 10 minutes, we would get a ding on the intercom, summoning another student down to the office. In my next class, the train of students being called to the office continued, and I remember being very confused about what was going on. Uh, at lunch, the room was only about half full. I mean, for some context, there was probably about 300 students just in my class, and so this particular middle school had between 12 and 1,500 students uh, at any given time, and so to see so few people was a little jarring. Uh, and by the last class of the day, I remember there was only about a third of the students who were typically there. My bus ride home was spotted with familiar faces, but took much less time than normal because we were able to skip so many stops along the way. And as I got off the bus at the corner of Finley and Ignatius Avenues, I began the two-block two block walk back to my house. My friend joined me uh, for a short stint, but broke off about halfway there uh, because we were passing his house. And, 
And I returned home finally. My two dogs, uh, Neon and Shadow, were in the yard barking. I'm sorry, they were not in the yard barking, which was kind of out of the blue for me. And so I went inside, and my mom was sitting in our family room uh, just watching TV, which was pretty out of character. Um, normally, she would, like, greet me as I came in the door and be really excited. Our dogs would be barking. It would be this mini joyous festival every time I got home from school. When I looked at her, um, I realized that something was a little bit different for, for today. Um, she just didn't really seem like herself. And I, I looked at the TV, and we ended up just sitting in silence, kind of watching this TV uh, for the next couple of hours because we were in disbelief at what we were seeing. Uh, what we saw was that there had been two planes that had struck the Twin Towers in New York, uh, one right after the other, um, and nobody had answers, quite frankly. Um, at first, it was thought that there was some kind of accident, that there was a screw-up of some sort that had tragic consequences, but then the second plane hit the second tower, and all of that kind of went out the window. Um, Eventually, both of those towers collapsed. Thousands were dead and countless more were injured. And there were just questions that no one had answers to. I remember two things about that time. I remember first that I was scared. We just didn't know what was going to happen next. And second, I remember that we did not know what to do. And when I say we, I don't just mean like my family, the Swanson family. I remember we, as collectively, the American people, had no idea what was gonna happen next. We knew that our lives had certainly changed that day, but we were all unprepared for how different they were going to be from that day forward. Before we jump into our text today, I think it's appropriate for us, even those of us who might not have been born when September 11th happened, uh, to take a minute just to acknowledge that it did happen. Um, I don't wanna downplay it, a sober look at the before and after tells us that morning changed quite literally the landscape for the entire world. Nothing was the same after that day. And not just here in America. Like when I say the world, I mean literally all over the world changed. But I also don't want us to romanticize it. Many people in the following weeks and months reasserted their faith in the greatness of the American flag and its ideals. And it was truly a beautiful thing to see neighbor caring for neighbor, to see our neighbor saying like, hey, I'm going to the grocery store, do you need anything? Like there was, there was a bonding and camaraderie that I had never experienced before as an American in the outgrowth of what had happened. But it was also a time when fear became weaponized for political gain and strategy. And we look back 21 years later and see that pretty clearly. Um, as a country, we looked for a convenient villain and we found plenty of them. It was indeed a challenging and complicated time in American history, something that we still feel the effects of today. And so as we gather to worship God, who we profess is sovereign over all things in all of history, we confess that we don't know how we will recall those events that Tuesday, September the 11th of 2001, in another 20, 50, or 500 years. But like Israel in the passage today, we know that there are certain aspects of our collective story that we just need to remember. Not idolize, not reject, but to mourn our losses, to celebrate God's providence, and to anticipate a time where the Lamb of God will make all things new. And so, Lord, we pray, may it be so for us today. Amen. I don't have a good transition <laughs> to, to get us into our passage for today. And so if it's okay with you, 
I'm just simply going to make a hard right turn. We're going to jump in uh, and, and look at what Jesus has to say to us. Is that, is that okay? Yes? Can we say yes? We can respond in church. I know this is like a Protestant white church, and we can do that. It's fine. We can say words back to each other. So <clears throat> today we're going to consider Jesus' teaching at the end of John chapter 8. We're coming off of a lengthy scene where Jesus has been teaching at several different times and places all during this thing called the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles. And what we'll see in these short nine verses is that Jesus offers three quite striking claims about himself that I think, regardless of what you profess to believe about Jesus, I think we need to contend with them. The first claim is that he is divine. He is capable of judging all of humanity. The second claim is that he is human, and specifically Israel's Messiah, perfectly obedient to the Father in his will. And the third claim is that he is the demonstration of God's glory to a watching world. And so sometimes we encounter a passage of Scripture that calls for like a certain kind of response, right? Uh, to begin doing something new, to stop doing something else that we were doing, to, to be and inhabit the world in a particular kind of way. But I think we're going to find that today's passage is, is merely a question about what is true, about God, about us in the world. And I think what we're meant to do is simply sit with it, to consider it, to be amazed by it, and to ponder the difference that it might make in our lives if it is true. And so what I propose that we do is to peel back some of the layers that Jesus presents to us today in his teaching and to leave here with the goal of not just doing something different, but expanding our imaginations a little bit about who God is and what that means for us. So let's start with a little bit of context. As I said, we're going to pick up our text with Jesus teaching in the synagogues. This is not him out in public uh, on the square, just calling random people to himself. He's in the Jewish worship center. And he's doing so specifically during the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you don't know, that's okay. The, this feast is instituted by God in Leviticus 23. And it was to take place over eight days from one Sabbath to the next. Uh, and God commands Israel to dwell in this thing called a shukut. I don't know if my Hebrew is that good, so you'll stick with me. But you probably don't know, so let's go with shukut, right? These are, shukut are temporary dwellings. They're little tents. And it was meant to celebrate... Uh, and commemorate the Exodus, the story of God leading his people out of slavery into the wilderness and specifically into worship of God. It was a festival that lined up in accordance with the fall harvest every year, and it was inextricably tied to both God's deliverance of his people uh, and to two chapters in Israel's cultural memory that were indeed a cause for great celebration. So Israel's memory of God's provision and favor towards them makes for an insanely interesting backdrop for the story that we're going to hear Jesus talk about. And as we arrive in our text today, it really is simply a conversation about Jesus' identity with the religious leaders of Israel. We'll see that what Jesus has to say links two of the most important promises God gives to his people together and ultimately rests those promises on the identity of Jesus. So let's take a look at these three claims one by one. First, let's, let's talk about Jesus' claim of authority, specifically his divinity. He says in a couple different ways that Morgan read for us that I am from above, I am not of this world, compared to you who are from below and who are not of this world. Look, Jesus sets himself as, as something that is categorically different than the people he's talking to, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. 
But what's the fundamental difference? Is it, is it a theological difference? Does he just disagree on some doctrine? Is it an ethnic difference? Is he from a, a different people group to them? Is it a difference in credentialing that they had some kind of different equipping or training that credentialed them in different ways? What we see is that Jesus' difference that he's pointing out here is actually the difference between creator and creation. So what do I mean by that? Well, in the Jewish imagination, there are fundamentally two spheres. Uh, there are two created orders that house the different kinds of beings. The first that maybe you are familiar with is called Earth. This is the home that the beings of dust inhabit, also known as humans. Humans are made in God's image and called to rule and reign over the whole of the earth, stewarding this created order. And that means that they were supposed to rule over the order just like God, even though they aren't God. And in doing so, humans would actually function as this weird old word called idols. They were representatives and reminders of the kingly creator God to the rest of the earth. So when the rest of the created order looked at humans, they would think of God. Everything was created to worship God in its own way. And humans were to do that by stewarding the whole of the earth. The second order is this thing called the heavens. And this is God's dwelling place. There are a whole host of other creatures that we read about in the scriptures called the heavenly host of angels that were created. But they're not of this earthly realm. Now, here's the thing. We don't know much about them. I'm not going to profess to be like an angelic uh, expert but there's three things you just need to know about them before we move on. One, that they exist. That there are created beings that are spiritual that exist. Two, that God created them. That it wasn't just poof, they existed. Or that they predated God or predated us. But that God created them. And three, that these created beings dwell in heaven with God. In the heavenlies. In heaven. And to say then that you are from above is more than just like a metaphorical claim. Now, we might use this phrase to mean something like a favorable outcome or to describe like a generous gesture from another person, like that something was a godsend, that it was from above and it was a gift to us. My point is that most often we don't literally mean that something is from above in the same way that the Jews would have understood it, uh, but instead it's just a stroke of luck. It's a good fortune for us. But in the Jewish, imagina Jewish imagination, it means that you have quite literally been in the presence of God in his dwelling in the heavenly realm. And that makes you either an angel or God himself to say that you are from above. So Jesus here is quite clearly trying to operate in something more than just a metaphor, more than just good fortune, more than just a stroke of luck. But what does he say? He says, I am from above, and you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. Okay, look, this is an insanely controversial phrase. It was to them, and it is to us. We know that given the response of the Pharisees that he's talking to. Why? Because they're like, what are you talking about? He says that they will die in their sins if they don't believe that I am he, and they respond with, who are you? But that's... When you, when you hear that, you might be tempted to read it as this kind of like inquisitive, sorry, like I don't know who you are, can you remind me? Like if you've seen somebody's face and you just don't remember their name. But like the Greek that's going on behind the scenes here is way stronger than that. So when I was in high school, I worked in a pizza shop. And I got that job because the guy who owned that pizza shop 
uh, also was the guy who ran the concession stand at a local pool. And my buddy Jeremy got me a job at the pool. And so when the pool closed for the summer, he was looking for people to work the pizza shop and said, Mike, do you want to like sling pizzas? And I was like, I like pizza. Sure. I also like money. And, like 14-year-old Mike working behind the counter. And somebody's saying, hey, Mike, you are really terrible at making pizzas. You're fired. And somebody just like walks in through the door that I don't know. Now, however true of a statement that might have been about 14-year-old Mike, uh, you might have a similar response to what I would think I would have, which is like, I'm sorry, who are you? The question behind this question is simply, what authority do you have to fire me? Look, the Pharisees know that Israel is a, sim- is a sinful people, and for them, the, the Roman Empire that's ruling over them currently holds power over the city of God's promise in Jerusalem. Why? Because Israel was sinful. Like, they're not pretending that they weren't sinful. But for somebody to come in and assert you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he, that hits a certain kind of nerve. But it goes deeper than that. There's this really interesting hiccup in the Greek that we kind of miss when we just read it in English. I promise I'm not going to get technical into parsing Greek words. Like, if you're not a language nerd like me, that's okay. We're just going to set it to the side. But what I just need you to know is one thing. Some translations have a different rendering of this text than I am he. Some translations will just render it, I am. Jesus said that I am. And what you need to know is that when Jesus says that I am, I am he in the Greek, the he is implied. Like there's no he pronoun that sits there in the original text. And so why is that? Well, the phrase that Jesus is using is this Greek phrase called ego I me, or something closer to like I am, I exist. And for the language nerds among you, the verb I me doesn't have a gender attached to it. So how many of you like, can speak a different language? Show of hands. Okay, not, oh, this is great. We're going to talk about languages. I love this. All right, when you would expect Jesus to be talking in the first person, you would expect there to be some type of gender attached to the word that he's using. Okay, so in a lot of other languages, not in English, but in a lot of other languages, you have genders attached to words. And when you, con- what's called conjugating a verb, what you do is you take the tense, like what it's talking about, kind of the context, add it to it, the gender, and it changes the way that the word actually appears. And so what we see Jesus doing is the expectation would be when he says, ego, I'm me, we would expect that to be uh, conjugated according to the singular masculine. Okay, if that doesn't, if that's like hitting you in the head and you're like, what are you talking about? That's fine. That's not what happens though. What we get is actually this sense of Jesus is saying something far more uh, existential, something far bigger than just one person. The way that he uh, conjugates the verb is something, it's this random text or random tense that I don't really fully understand. But it's, it's, it's an overarching thing. It's something that is, permeates all of existence. He's saying it as if it's this statement of incontrovertible fact. Not just that he is, but that he is. And so it might sound familiar if you're thinking about the words I am to those of you that have recently read through the book of Exodus. In Exodus 3, there's this story about God calling Moses and saying, hey, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and I'm going to call all of Israel to come worship me in the desert. And, and Moses, you're going to be the guy that delivers the bad news to Pharaoh. Why? Because Israel is a bunch of slaves and you're getting a bunch of free labor. And so Moses is like, that's great. 
but like whom should I say is sending me? And God says to Moses, I am. The early church's translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek rendered these words as the same words that Jesus uses here, ego, I me. That God is this ever-present, consistent reality that pervades all history, past, present, and future. It's unclear in the English, but in the Greek and Hebrew, it's painfully obvious that Jesus here is saying that he is the same God who called Israel out of Egypt. It's from this vantage point that he offers his judgment of the situation. You will die in your sins if you don't believe, not just that I am he, but that I am. I'm going to say a lot more about what these claims mean for who Jesus is, but I don't want to move on before we consider what he's saying. Friends, the claim of authority and perspective, and and from that perspective, Jesus is saying that we are all dead in our sins. There's a great problem in front of us in this passage. And again, it all hinges on whether or not we believe that Jesus has the authority to actually make that claim. But as we come to a conclusion about who he is, we need to remember that he's telling us not just a neutral observation, but that we are dead in our sins. And so the natural question for the Pharisees, as it is for us, is to ask, Jesus, who do you think that you are? Who are you to make this claim on us? And for John's audience, I think we're to grapple with the severity of that claim. It is a radical statement to say to somebody, you are dead in your sin." He's the, when Jesus says that I am he, he's saying that he is the same God that freed Israel, that sent the ten plagues or the judgments against Egypt, the God who met Israel in the pillar of cloud and fire that Matt talked about two weeks ago. He's the God who is from above, not from below. He's the God who is holy and judges the sins of humanity. He's the same God who told Israel to celebrate the exact feast that they're in the middle of. And he, apparently, is standing in front of me. So Jesus, who do you think you are? It says in the text that they didn't think that he was talking about that he was going to go kill himself, that he's going to go somewhere that they can't follow him. So it can't be that he's really God, right? Like, is he really from above? But that's exactly what Jesus is telling them. And from this text, we see that Jesus claims three things just about that testimony. Verse 25, we see that his testimony is consistent. If you go back through um, the rest of the Gospel of John, you'll see that Jesus is not trying to claim something new about himself. He's not trying to deceive anyone or pull the wool over anyone's eyes. He says the same thing. If you just look at this like episode in John 7 and 8, he says it like six times. Chapter 7, verses 6 to 9, 16 to 19, 28 and 29, 33 and 34, and then again in chapter 8, verses 14 to 18 in verse 19. He's saying the same thing over and over again. And later on, Jesus is going to be charged with blasphemy in front of this Roman judge named Pontius Pilate, saying that he thinks that he's God. And it's obvious even just from these two chapters that Jesus is incredibly consistent. The second claim is that his testimony is true. Let's look at verse 32. We'll see that next week Jesus tells us that his testimony is true and that we know it will, that it is true because it will set us free. And this is, again, consistent about the witness uh, about Jesus from the other gospel accounts, and namely that we know the character of something by the fruit that it produces. And so he's inviting us to consider the statement that he is Lord, that he is God, but asking us, is it true? Does this ring true to you? But not just is it true, 
but does it produce freedom in your life? Like, does the announcement that Jesus is Lord actually set you free, just like it did to Israel all those years ago in the Exodus? And third, the last claim here, verses 26, 28, and 29, that Jesus' testimony is from the Father. Like, this is not him making it up, but that it is from God himself, and it reveals the Father's will to us. Jesus tells us that his testimony is consistent, that it's from the beginning, and that it's true, that it's not deceptive. But both of these things are because they are from the Father. He tells us that his words are what he has heard from the Father, the one who is what? True. In keeping with the themes of consistent truth, Jesus tells us that everything that he has done comes from the Father. There's no interpretation. There's no misapplication. Instead, he's telling us that everything that he does, he does because the Father has told him to. And Jesus tells us that he's walking in lockstep with the Father, that he is living in perfect submission to God. He doesn't do anything that he hasn't heard from the Father, and what the Father wills is made true in Jesus the Son. And this, interestingly enough, is the exact thing that humans were created for, perfect obedience to the Father. Jesus has claimed to be God, this I am statement, and he is living in perfect accord with God's will, historically the human vocation. And in this short passage, Jesus is combining God's role and humanity's role into a single personhood. We're going to talk more about what this means in a minute, but we have to do so according to this last claim, that he is the revelation of God's glory to a watching world. I'm going to zoom in on two phrases for us. The first is this phrase, the Son of Man, in John 8, 28. So the Son of Man is not a new phrase with Jesus. It's not like a cool nickname that he came up with himself. It's something that he's drawing on from the Old Testament, specifically in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And it's the name that Daniel gives for Israel's Messiah, the one who's going to free Israel from her bondage under the Assyrian rule. Check out this. This is the, the prophecy that Daniel gives. Uh, this is, again, from Daniel 7, 13, and 14. He writes, And I saw one coming like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, which is, this is the God who is from the beginning. And he was escorted before him. And he was given the authority to rule and glory in a kingdom that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. I mean, does this sound familiar to those of you that have read the New Testament? This is another development in the Hebrew mind concerning the Messiah. That he is the ruler that Israel comes to expect is going to set everything right again. And to a, a people who are living in slavery, that is good news. The Son of Man came to overthrow this oppressive government who subjugated them. But I don't want you to miss this. In the Daniel testimony, the role of Messiah is a human role. Sometimes Christians can look back at the Old Testament witness regarding the Messiah and read into that text what we know about Jesus. That, hear me, that nine times out of ten is such a good move. And I'm asking, keep doing that if you do it. But for those remembering Daniel's prophecy before Jesus' death and resurrection, they would not have assumed that Israel's Messiah to be anything other than a role in God's redemptive plan played specifically by a human being. 
Jesus has, in this passage, already made a significant claim about his divinity, that he is from the Father, that he is not of this world, that he is from above, that he has the authority to judge the sins of humanity, that he calls himself, I am. This is either a cataclysmic claim, if true, or it's delusionally blasphemous if it's false. But don't miss this. He then turns to situate himself in perfect obedience to the Father, going as far to say that he is Israel's Messiah, something entirely human. And so we're left with this question about Jesus. Does he think that he's God, or does he think that he is a man? Now, maybe you've heard the phrase of being a third-way people. It means that where there are two divergent paths or views, a third-way person seeks to find an alternative that honors both perspectives. And on their best days, third-way people are wise. But on their worst, they are compromising. Jesus gives us sort of a a third-way response here, something that no one sees coming. He says, why not both? Now, we might be tempted to see this response like the Pharisees do as a contradiction, an either-or proposition. Jesus, either you're God or you're human. Which do you say you are? And the church's historic confession is actually this third way that he is both fully God and fully human. If you go back into history and look at the, the historic creeds of the church, they were given to us as a shorthand way to summarize the core tenets about what it means to be called a Christian. So rather than having to read the whole New Testament, we're going to boil it down to 30 seconds that we can memorize, recite, and hold fast to together. Now, we don't have time to unpack this here, thank God. But what you need to know is that the creeds of the church function like bookends. They don't say everything exhaustively, but they outline the boundaries of an orthodox faith. So when we look at something like the Apostles' Creed, which is the first one of these creeds in the history of the church, what we expect to see is some kind of comment on the relationship between Jesus' divinity and his humanity. What did they understand him to be? And this is what it says in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and was crucified, died, and was buried. Don't miss this. He was born through the union between God and a person, Jesus' mother, Mary. And and, and don't miss this. His divinity didn't erase his humanity. And his humanity didn't spoil his divinity. Reflecting on this idea, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 uh, is thinking like this. He says that Jesus Christ is our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was established as the powerful Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. Fully God and fully man in one person. There's a couple different names for this in church history, things like the hypostatic union or the theandric union. If you don't want to talk about those, that's fine. All I'm asking is that you understand that what we see in Jesus about in this passage is that he is both fully God and fully man. And it is from that perspective that he addresses us. Maybe you're like, Mike, this doesn't make any sense. How can God, how can one person be both God and man together? And first, I just want to say, you're right. Like, it doesn't make sense. How can it be that way? How can an infinite and all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, always good, holy God come to be revealed through a finite and limited body of a human being? Look, I don't know. 
but I don't think we're expected to be able to logically dissect and parse the whole thing out. Why? Because the scriptures tell us that the, revo- the revelation of God and the man Jesus of Nazareth is a mystery. It's something that you won't understand until the answer is revealed to you. And up until this point, all we know is that Jesus is both God and man, not how Jesus is both God and man. And so when we return to this phrase about the Son of Man, it's not just that he is the Son of Man, but he is the Son of Man who is lifted up. He connects this prophecy about the Son of Man to being lifted up, which is, an, which is an Old Testament theme over and over and over again. You could look at Exodus 17 or Numbers 21 or Isaiah 52, which is this verse about this thing called the suffering servant. On the, uh, the prophecy about Israel's Messiah is often called this suffering servant. And check this out. This is what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 52, 13 to 15. He says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were appalled at you. He appeared was, he, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told to them and they will understand what they had not heard. Look, the exaltation of this servant who is disfigured beyond recognition will be the one who causes governments to come under his authority, just the same as the Daniel passage. Jesus keeps pointing back to himself through all of these different things, connecting the Son of Man to the divinity of God, to the suffering servant who is lifted up. And it's fitting that all of these stories are in view for Jesus. They both come from Israel's desert wanderings and are being recounted during the of the, of the servant being lifted up leads to salvation for the people. And so far we've seen Jesus claim to be God himself, the ego in me, who freed Israel from her slavery, led her through the desert, provided her for her from nothing, established her as a holy people set aside to reveal God's glory to the world who holds the rightful authority and perspective to judge the sins of the world. That is a bold claim, friends. But we've also seen that Jesus claims that he is the human son of man, Israel's Messiah, the suffering servant who is the king to set Israel free once again, ushering in the reign of the kingdom of heaven all over the earth. That he is entirely and completely obedient to the will of the father and does only what he sees the father doing. Another banger of a bold claim. These two things, fully God, and fully man are on display in the person of Jesus. One person, two natures. But Jesus says that the Son of Man will be lifted up. So what does he mean by that? We know that the paradigm that's emerged from all of these deep cuts and references is that human beings being used by God for the unfolding of his redemptive narrative is in some way publicly uplifted for all to see. That those who follow in the footsteps of the servant aren't just like doomed to obscurity, but they are publicly lifted up. And so we look to the, the rest of the life and ministry of Jesus. We see that John points to us no fewer than three events which might qualify as the Son of Man being lifted up. We think about the crucifixion where he is nailed to a Roman cross, where he dies in our place for all to see on a public crucifixion hill. We also see the resurrection and the ascension where the stone is rolled away, where the two guards who stood watch 
don't know where he's gone, where he then appears to the 12 and to many faithful witnesses, proving that he is once again alive. And we also look forward to this third in the last book of the Bible, the revelation of the land. We, we see this thing called the apocalypse of the land happening. And if you don't know what the word apocalypse means, it's a really fancy word. It just means unveiling. And that whole book points to the fact that the Lamb of God, that his true identity as the king over the whole world is being revealed in front of everyone. Look, we could go real deep on all of these, but my point is just simple words that Jesus preaches, despite being dense and rich with biblical and cultural imagery, all point to one thing, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus' lordship, according to this passage, rests on these things, that he is divine, that he is of the same essence as the great I am who led Israel out of slavery through the wilderness and into the promised land. It rests on the fact that he is human, Israel's Messiah, perfectly obedient to the Father, doing only what the Father wills. And third, that he is the glory of God, fully revealed in time and space, the announcement of God's triumph over sin and death, the anticipation of the life that is to come in eternity, unified with God's very life. And so I think we're confronted with this single question in this text. Who do you say that Jesus is? My hope is that as we've walked through Jesus' claims about himself over the course of this passage, that you're beginning to let your mind wander. Wander about what? Well, wander about what it would be like to meet with Jesus with the whole of God's fullness revealed in him bodily. Wander about what the very presence of God, the creator and sustainer of all life, what his footsteps might sound like or, or the cadence of his voice, what that might sound like. Or to wander about what a handshake or a hug from Jesus might feel like. Or wander about how he might respond to the news about war in Ukraine or about a certain medical advancement or, or passing a grade on a test. Friends, I just want you to see that this is a God who draws near to us. And when he comes near, don't forget, he reminds us that he is God and we are not. He reminds us that he is near to the brokenhearted, but he also reminds us that we are dead in our sins. And his nearness to us is indeed because he loves us, but also because he has come to forgive us, to heal us, and most of all, to revive us. And so I ask that as long as you look at this glorious God-man, Jesus the Christ, you remember that he has come not just for the sake of it, but that he has come for our redemption. That when he says that you are dead in your sins, the antecedent to that phrase is, I have come to revive you. So friends, I just invite you, let us draw near to the throne of mercy with confidence. Will you pray with me? Jesus, it is astounding the richness of who you claim to be. I mean, how could it not be? You are God, and we are not. And so in view of everything that you've taught, taught us, but particularly in the way that you have revealed us to 
revealed yourself to us through John 8. Jesus, I pray that you would focus our vision on who you are and who you claim to be. Holy Spirit, we pray that that truth of Jesus that has been from the beginning would sink deeper into our hearts. Would it challenge us? Would it convict us? But would it also comfort us that the God of all creation, the great I am, has drawn near to us? Jesus, we don't claim to understand the fullness of who you are, but we are grateful for how you have revealed yourself to us. And so for us as a community, we pray, Holy Spirit, continue to reveal yourself to us. Continue to draw us near to the throne of mercy with confidence, knowing, God, that you have first drawn near to us. So Jesus, we pray this because we love you and we believe that you are who you said you are. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.